Good morning. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is August the 3rd, 2021, and this is the continuation of the LSAT Life Series. We, of course, understand that LSAT is a reflection of people's lives once it comes into their lives. And as always, joining me are Keith Seiska in Texas and Jake Feldman in New York. And we have, uh, for those who are interested in history, I think a very interesting topic today. But first, welcoming Jake and Keith. How are you today? Morning, John. Doing well. Hey, thanks for doing this with us. Okay. So this is, um, you know, it's either, uh, you know, one of the most interesting and relevant ones uh, that you'll hear or the least, uh, depending (laughs) on the extent to which you want to understand how the test prep industry really got to the place it is today and how and why uh, LSAT questions really have to be the way they are. So I will begin by sort of introducing the topic in the following way. Although I have not been an LSAT teacher for some years, nor do I have any interest in being an LSAT teacher or tutor in the future, It was a part of my life for the the number of years that I taught and worked as a law school admission consultant. And I actually started doing this at a time when the test was very dramatically different from what it is today, but also, believe it or not, at a time before there were 90 LSATs, real LSATs available for purchase or 70 or 60 or 50 but actually at a time where there were no available LSATs for purchase, zero, and only a handful of books out there to talk about the author's perception of what the test actually was about. So I can tell you that LSAT prep in those days was a very interesting and different experience Certainly, it was not a situation where anybody could enter the industry simply by saying, well, you know, we're going to buy a bunch of tests and, uh, and hand them out. But what is a common denominator through all of these years, going back to the even the formation of the LSAT, is, of course, the role that these tests play in people's lives, whether it's LSAT, SAT, MCAT, GMAT, GRE, et cetera and the tremendous anxiety that they provoke in people. And I'd like to begin by reading a a paragraph out of a book written by a guy named David Owen. The book was called None of the Above. It's actually about the SAT, but I think it probably applies here. And every time you hear the word SAT in this paragraph, you just translate LSAT, but here we go. But of course, most people's feelings about the SAT and other standardized tests are not entirely rational. The tests have a power out of all proportion of their actual content and they awaken smoldering insecurities in the people who take them. The intensity of their anxiety doesn't have much to do with the size of their scores. Low scores worry the tests are definitive and binding. High scores worry they are not. Does any of that sound familiar? It's brilliant because there's anxiety up and down the board and it really explains why it captures it so well. Isn't that an amazing, amazing paragraph? And then one more sentence at the end of another paragraph, which I think many of you will be able to relate to. 
even in adult life, one occasionally encounters people who in anxious moments find ways of inserting their scores into casual conversation. <laughs> Imagine oh, no. this. People who can't remember their shoe size don't forget what they got on the LSAT. So, so what, what was your LSAT score, John? I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> but that's because of age. That's because uh, of age. I must don't buy it. I remember enough, mine. It must have been high enough to get into law school, become a lawyer, and teach LSAT. But who knows? But actually, that might be an interesting intro into the discussion. You know, you ask about LSAT scores. Why don't we talk a little bit about how the, how the scale itself has actually evolved over the years? So 1947 was the origin of this thing. 1947, probably nobody was alive. I wasn't alive then either, by the way. Okay, but certainly you weren't alive. No. Basically, the law school admission council was created and they needed a product to sell. And that product became the LSAT. But you see... LSAT was newer into the game, so I think they probably emulated the SAT by having a scoring range of 200 to 800. And that's what it actually was until um, 1982, I think. That was, that was the scoring range, 200 to 800. Very different test then. Have you done your research at all on what was on the test and how it was different? Yeah, bits and pieces. I mean, it's hard to track down a lot of that content because a lot of that content isn't out there. There are a couple of straggling copies of, of old tests. Um, I, was, I was looking for them this morning. I couldn't get my hands on the one that I was thinking of. But there's a lot of good stuff out there. What do you have on the shelf, John? Anything good? Oh, what do I have? Well, at one point, I had all these things. I think I told you in a previous podcast, I purged myself for all about a year ago. But... Um, <laughs> No, it was a very, very different test uh, in so many ways. I mean, you would agree that today the test is, I think, pure reading and reasoning, right? I mean, there's very little in the way of background skills that you would bring into that test, or background knowledge, rather, background knowledge. But at that time, uh, they tested English grammar. They had uh, two different kinds of quantitative sections. One that was called quantitative comparisons which if I'm not mistaken, I, I know that uh, Jake teaches GRE courses. That's still on the GRE? Uh, it is not, is it on the GRE? It's on the GMAT. Um, I don't know Quantitative comparisons or data sufficiency? They have data sufficiency on the GMAT. Um, is quantitative comparisons still? I think it is still on the, on the GRE. It's, they also have it on some of the, uh, the smaller tests as well. GRE keeps sort of moving the needle, so it's hard to keep track of what they've right. done in the last three months. Well, this is the section anyway where there are two columns, right? And uh, you'd, you'd have to compare the quantity in each of the two columns, and there were four choices, which makes the guessing odds better, of course. Uh, you put A if column A was greater than B, B if B was greater than A, C if they were equal, and D if cannot be determined. And that means objectively not determined, not, oh, my God, I can't do this, therefore D. Well, right? yeah. Yeah, D, D was always the hardest thing because people didn't understand how to answer D. They knew how to, but they didn't even really know how to answer any of them, right? It's sort of like an LSAT must be true question. It's not, it, it's not A if you can get A, it's A if it has to be A. So I always told people the easiest way to answer D is if you could make it A one time, but B another time. Well, then it's D. Yeah, like, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's not a bad way of putting it at all, actually. So anyway, that was on the test. And you can imagine that a lot of people who were math phobic 
you know, were really up. I mean, they would just take a look at this stuff, you know, feel a wave of sickness coming on, you know, and that, and that was the end of it because, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, my theory is that the people who want to go to law school, it generally means they can't do math, right? Because, you know, that's, that's really about the only thing left, you know, that's completely neutral in terms of quantitative skills. There was also a section called data interpretation, which was reading graphs and charts. And this was something people had an awful lot of trouble with. Have you ever seen those? Yeah, it was it was on that document. I'm trying to track it down. There was a document that showed all the old sections on the LSAT and example questions from some of them. And I yeah, that. anyway, I mean, it, it was incredible. They, and a lot of this stuff was actually very, very difficult. Uh, they were, you know, creative graphs and charts, all, all different kinds, and people had to manipulate data off them, et cetera. And, um, you know, of course, there were no calculators. And some of these actually did require calculations. So, I mean, this was, this was full-blown, heavy-duty stuff. And and, and that section does still exist on the ACT. So the ACT has that, what they call the science section, but the science section is really just interpret graphs. And actually the new SAT has a bit of it as well. It's sort of embedded into some of the re reading and math. Um, but the ACT has a more robust section, though it's simpler than what used to be on the LSAT. Yeah. And then they had, and so then they had, um, I mean, the, the grammar was interesting because there were two kinds of, of questions. One was something that I believe is still on the GMAT, uh, which was a section called sentence correction, where they would give you a sentence, part of it was underlined, then there were five choices, okay, yep. uh, you know, uh, you, you had to pick the one that was correct. Um, and this was just, you know, this was a standard grammar, but as you can imagine, people had trouble with the second one, though was really a problem for people. It was called error recognition, where you actually had to describe what kind of an error it was. Yeah, okay, and this was, you know, this was very problematic. And of course, you know, this went on along with sections that were made up legal rules where you had to apply these things. And this went on for, you know, for a number of years. And of course, and they had, by the way, two kinds of reading. One that was arguably sim similar to the passages of today, the, you know, the reading comprehension you recognize, uh, but another, which was called reading recall, where you actually had to read the passages, that was it, couldn't turn back to them, turn the page, and here are all the questions. Yeah, so, cool. yeah, if you can imagine, I mean, how does that, how do you, does that sound to you in terms of comparing to today's test? Well, it, you know, you left one out, uh, they had that section with the languages where you would have to make up a, a new oh, language yeah, yeah, or they would yeah, give yeah. you some made up language with grammar rules. And it was just nonsensical syllables. And uh, that's my favorite section. You would end up, you know, you have all these really intelligent people sitting there thinking, ooga booga wooga. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm not sure that actually ever counted. Uh, they oh, had is that right? Uh, sections, you know, through all the years they've had experimental sections. I'm not sure that one counted. Um, I've seen some samples of it. That's how I knew about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you know, if you saw any old LSAT prep books from the '70s or something, you know, you would see that type of thing. Um, but I'm not sure it ever counted. I certainly huh. have no memory of ever engaging with any of that type of stuff on an actual test or in an LSAT class. But that was, that was basically what, it, you know, what it was. So, you know, very, very different tests from today. 
And, you know, so now what's interesting is that if we start sort of in the 70s with that, right, and then we'll get to the truth and testing law, but that format of the LSAT continued right on until that pivotal event, which was the New York uh, truth and testing law. So, you know, it might be worth talking about that a little bit. Now, bear in mind, during these years, there were no actual tests out there. I mean, LSAT published a little booklet, you know, with like 30 sample questions or something like that. In fact, in my hand right here, believe it or not, I actually have the LSAT bulletin from 1959-60. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? You know, that has, you know, a number, a number of sample questions in it. So what happened was, so, I mean, just I'm interested in your views of this. Uh, I mean, do you think that uh, they should have disclosed these test questions or not? You know, this this is hard because, you know, as 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 we know to be the case, as soon as you reveal the metric used to determine something, the metric ceases to carry significant weight in terms of measuring it. Right. As soon as you know what's going to be on the test, you can design your preparation toward it and the test loses its power. Now, on the other hand, there's an there's an enormous issue with access. Right. And if access isn't isn't equitable across you know groups of people, that's problematic. The, the New York City is going through this right now with the specialized high schools, right? The the the, the public but but um, magnet schools, uh, where they had for a long time um, very sort of uh, informal rubrics for determining who was fit for these things, and there was a huge problem with access. And so they said, well, no, what we need is a standardized test, and we'll put that standardized test out there, and that way everyone will have equal access. And enrollment went down for protected classes, and went down for the black community, and went down for the Hispanic community, uh, and made problems worse. And then with COVID in the last two years, they've they had to do away with the test, and they're trying to figure out what to do next in order to bring equ equitability to 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 access here. And you know, I think we dealt with the same thing in 1980 with with this with this law, yeah. right? Because you reveal you reveal the test, and in truth, what that's supposed to do is create a, a, a more even playing field. But it doesn't, because what it does is it allows people with means to prepare in a more significant way, um, and it allows corporations, private corporations, to create businesses around preparing people with means, uh, and it makes things worse. You know, I, have you know, a, I think that's a very interesting argument. I, I mean, what's your perception of that, Keith? I've got a, a interesting take on this because I had never looked into the LSAT prior to teaching the MCAT for many years, and in the world of MCAT prep, there were very few official exams. I think at that time there were you know, three or four or five AAMC exams and everything else was made up by the test prep companies. And so when I entered the LSAT market, I viewed LSAC as, um, as almost benevolent. I was like, look what they've done. They've given the world everything, all the keys to their exam to go look at and to figure out on their own. But I don't know, you know, over the years, I have a lot more ambivalence about whether that's a good or a bad thing. I still well, feel, however, like transparency is better than non-transparency. So at the end of the day, even though all those tests give us the ability to game the test a little bit, skew the results, 
and favor certain groups over others, I still think it's preferable to not having the tests. And some of the research seems to bear that out, that in the case of law school, the LSAT seems to have opened access for minorities, not the reverse, like Jake was talking about with the uh, with the New York example. So it's not cut and dried. No, not no at it's, all. it's not cut and dried at all. Um, I mean, you know, if I think back to that era, um, I mean, the truth of the matter was that those people who had the money to take LSAT prep courses, uh, you know, were at a huge advantage relative to those who didn't. And they were, you know, and they, well, of course, they've never been inexpensive. That's uh, true for MCAT too, though, and there's no test. So, I mean, releasing the test doesn't make it so that money gives you better, act, you know, better results. That exists regardless of whether it's transparent or not. Yeah, I think there's no question about that. I mean, presumably you would both agree that the more money people have to throw at preparation, the better off they are. 100%. The degree to which they're better off is, you know. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a different reason. issue. But Well, of course, you know, this this plays itself out on a couple different levels, though. I mean, part of it is just the, the confidence, the sort of psychological aspect of it, right? And the other is, you know, what's really going on. But there's no question that the whole... Uh, law admissions game is stacked in favor of people who have the money to play the game right sure sure you know but there, there were there were other things going on in the 70s with testing that i think feed into this right there was this whole scandal about reliability on the sat side um that happened in the 70s and the you know the test the tests were unreliable um the tests you know and the, that's discounting a validity issue just that that application of the test in different uh, demographics was bad and this there was huge upheaval uh with standardized testing in general and i think there was an effort to to as keith said promote transparency in order to ensure that there were checks and balances right the whole point here was that when students gained access to the test that they shouldn't have gained access Access to, they found errors and they were furious and they, you know, they, they realized that their futures depended. There were a few. Yeah, there were a few. I mean, it didn't take long. So what happened was that effective January 1st, 1980, in order for these companies, say the Educational Testing Service and others to administer these tests in New York State, which is a huge market, uh, you know, they had to be willing to disclose these things. It only took, I think, you know, two SATs before, you know, one of the answers was demonstrated to be wrong. Yeah, and, and I think that's, that's a, uh, it's a significant moment to say that ultimately transparency is the right thing. But it has this collateral effect that now we're all dealing with, which is that um, we have all these prep tests what do we do with them? Do we rely on them to build products for the future? To what extent is LSAT bound to make the new LSAT like the old LSATs? How much can we rely on that? And, and is it wrong for companies to rely on historical LSATs going back 20, 30, 40 years and say, that's representative of what they're doing in 2021? I find that to be- Does anybody do that? Yes, they're pitching all of the prep tests as here's part of your curriculum. No, no, I mean, LSAT, LSAT is, as I understand, is making them all available from June of 1991, correct? Right. Okay, so that's starting with prep test one up to around 90 or whatever it is. Okay, so 20 years. 
Yeah, okay, but okay, but but the thing is, as far as the well, it's thirty years, isn't it? But as far as the market, <laughs> as, far, as far as the market, uh, as far as the market marketing of this stuff, my impression is that most courses and tutors are, you know, I think reasonably promoting the more recent tests. Is that correct? They are. You know, there there there's interesting chatter about this because on the one hand. You know, there are a lot of people that say only use the modern tests are the only ones that are representative. Well, OK, but that's not really true. Right. If you go back to 1991, predominantly the content is mostly the same, except that then there's another level in which there are subtle shifts. And if you go really deep, you can see that prep tests from the last five years are different in their substance in certain ways and that the content is shifting. Um, but but that being said, you know, the, the claim from LSAC is that the, the test hasn't fundamentally changed since prep test 19, I think, is the, the first one that they make available on the digital version of the site. Um, and they say, you know, these are the modern tests and they all represent, for the most part, what it is you're going to see on testing. Well, they by talk modern, out of both... they mean the most recent format is, I think, what they mean. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so. The format of the LSAT has not changed in any in any way that I think is worth keeping in your head or focusing on since June of ninety one, right? Right. Maybe in 07, they added the comparative passage. The comparative yeah. reading, yes. Yep. Other than that, you're right. No no intentional structural changes to the exam. Well, the flex said three sections. I mean, there was that. Sure. And, you know, what's okay. interesting about that, if you if you go back to the origins of the test, you know, the the uh, the admissions director from Columbia, who was sort of behind all of this, he said very clearly that he wanted the test to be an hour and a half long. And he thought that that was plenty. So maybe we're going back to roots. Well, it's going back to four sections now. So, uh, yeah, well, the experimental I mean, obviously, the experimental uh, section, although they've always had them right, uh, you know, is, is very, very clearly tied to the fact they need to try other questions for future use, which I would think, you know, has got to be necessarily rooted in the, uh, you know, the, the, the New York truth and testing law, right, that forces the disclosure of these things. The by its own admission of uh, a law school admission council changed the format uh, after January 1st, uh, 1980, you know, they, it the, the new ones took effect, I think, in June of uh, 1982, uh, you know, largely in response to that, right? You know, because of the, uh, uh, you know, the problem, I think, of a, a repeti possible repetition and stuff like that. The, um, the scale, the reporting scale changed uh, dramatically in 1982. Uh, went from 10 to 50 for one year from 1982 to 1983 and then was 10 to 48 up until uh, I guess 1991 yeah 1991 although there was another change from 89 to 91 which we'll get to in a second but um, the test changed really really dramatically in uh, 1982 the first thing is they got rid of the grammar and they replaced it with the now familiar writing sample. So that was, you know, that was that was a very, you know, which I think to some extent, okay, I mean, if it isn't obvious, uh, gives a clue to at least something that one needs to pay attention to when writing that stuff. Uh, but in any case, uh, they also uh, created a section called Facts and Issues, which was an amazing section. 
it was like 37 questions on this thing. And I, I, I swear you could teach a monkey to get 95% of them correct. Like it was so, it was, it was a test prep teacher's dream. It was a gift to the test prep industry because, you know, it's one of these sections where at least initially it might look confusing and people would have trouble with it. But with, you know, any kind of confident teaching on it, they could learn how to score really, really high on that. So that, you know, that was going on for all those years. They also introduced the logic games, by the way, that was the introduction in June of 1982. Hmm. And I will tell you this, there's no comparison between the kinds of things they were using as logic games at that time and the kinds of things that are on today. None whatsoever. In what way? Harder now? Um, so I have, I've been out of LSAT teaching for a while. So I, I, I think what I'll do is I'll answer the question, not in terms of where they are today, but where they were maybe 10 years ago or something. Uh-huh. Right? Sort of the mid, would that be in the, in the forties or something like that? Yeah, 40s 40, and 50s. Something in that range. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, they were harder then. Okay. They were actually harder then. uh, people were under a lot more time pressure. Uh, now, there may have been a change in test designer, you know, through the years, but that stuff gave people lots and lots of trouble. I mean, big trouble. Uh, you know, and that, and that, of course, interestingly, has survived now uh, three decades, four decades, four decades. Can you imagine? Yeah. You know, so you've got people who are at the end of their law careers, right, who would have taken that test. Um, that might be coming to an end. Yeah, there's, there's some talk about what will they do with logic games now with the settlement with for the blind accommodation. You know, you know I don't know a great deal about that. Maybe you can maybe you can uh, add that into our discussion. What happened there? Well, there was a lawsuit claiming that logic games was discriminatory against blind test takers because they couldn't diagram the game. And rather than litigate, LSAC settled it with the most cryptic settlement you could imagine that said they would research ways to ameliorate the problem and implement them by 2023 or something like that. So well, I think they're not even starting their research until 2020. They're not going to do anything. That's ridiculous. That's an agreement to do nothing. What do they do? They admitted the person to law school or something. I have no idea, but uh, many people viewed it as an indication that logic games was going away. I mean, that was the initial interpretation was they're getting rid of it. And then as we looked at the language more carefully, the lawyers had really made that so ambiguous what they had agreed to do. See, the reason why I don't think that test, that section or a reasonable facsimile is going away is because that's the only part of the test where the answers are incredibly black and white you know like there's no way to challenge the correctness you know of the correct answer in a logic game i mean you can try okay but you know but by definition those are black and white the the problem with the rest of the test is that even where the answer is completely justifiable and reasonable. It's rarely a perfect sort of black and white answer, right? Yeah, depending on what principles you use to analyze it. I mean, that's what we try to do in the industry is figure out 
what rule could we employ that would make that reasoning black and white? Can we figure out a, a strategy or a tactic that would decipher all of their correct answers and distinguish them from all of the wrong ones? That's my ultimate, that's my theory of everything in test prep. What's the guiding rule? Yeah, so, yeah, no, I think you're right. But what I mean when I say that is this, that um, let's assume for the moment, okay, that the that an answer to a, logic, a logical reasoning question is objectively correct. Let's assume this for the sake of discussion. Um, you can still change word order, right? You can still change, you know, you can use a synonym for something, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's, that's kind of what I mean. There's a, there's, there's a way to make an equally correct answer look different, right? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, therefore keep people away from it. With logic games, is that really the case? Yeah, the level of obfuscation is the 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 degree to which you can do it is a lot harder in games, right? Right answers are always right answers, but wrong answers are hard to dress up as right answers in games. In LR, it's easy to dress up a wrong answer as a right one. And well, in fact, that that's what I think the, the guiding principle is in logical reasoning for test design is you know is how to make the wrong answer seem attractive. Yep. Yep. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think they're going to have a hard time getting rid of games. I do. I, you know, wh whether they make an accommodation for people with visual impairment, I mean, they already do. Um, but the degree to which they can do it entirely for people that simply can't execute games, um, you know, I, 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 I don't know what they'll have to do to make that accommodation, but I think they're going to have a hard time letting go of it. I really do. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I think it's probably a lot less costly for them to uh, develop logic games questions. Uh, you know, that's that's my guess on it. Here was the uh, format of the test for seven years in the 80s. So we had this issues and facts section, which, you know, again, these were made up legal principles. So, you know, one could you know, if you didn't know anything about this, sort of, you know, tie that to, well, this is for a test for future law students. Um, logical reasoning, which, by the way, appeared experimentally on the LSAT in the mid-70s, okay, and didn't start counting till later. In fact, I remember doing an LSAT with logical reasoning on it at that time. Uh, became a staple of the test. So this is 24 to 26 questions. Reading comprehension, 27 to 29 questions. And logic games, 23 to 26 questions. So what we have is a test at that point where the most preparable section, issues and facts, have the largest number of questions for sure. It really was like a third of the test, okay? We had logical reasoning, definitely here to stay. But interestingly, nowhere near as important as, as, it, uh, as it became. Reading comprehension. So we have these things sort of coexisting, which was not a pleasant experience for a lot of people. And the games themselves. Um, yeah. You know, major, major change, right? You know, in just sort of one fell swoop. And then, of course, we have the, uh, the writing sample. Very odd, very odd uh, scoring scale as well. You know, generally the way you get there is uh, 100 times 
0.5 less 10 was sort of giving you your approximate score on that. But I don't know where that scale came from. You know, it just sort of came out of nowhere. Have you ever seen any tests? Have either of you ever seen faction issues or tests from that era at all? Yeah, I actually, I found the doc that I was looking for and, and it's interesting. It's got examples of all of these question types on it. So I've got a, I've gotten issues and facts in front of me. What's interesting is that, you know, that test in 82 basically looks like the modern test with issues and facts added on, but everything else is fundamentally the same. So the question is, why did they drop issues and facts? If it was the, the dominant portion of the test at that point, and it's the one that appears to be the most like first year law school, mm -hmm. um, what, what, what was the reasoning behind getting rid of it? Well, I, I have that here, actually. Uh, interestingly, uh -huh. this is all out of a chapter of a book that I wrote many years ago, by the way. It's chapter 44, Past and Present, the paper and pencil I also have through the years. But they apparently responded to your question. They were anticipating you, Jake. Ah, fantastic. Uh, and uh, what they said is they dropped it for the following reasons. One, easiest item type. Consequently, low discrimination among most able examinees. Uh, that's because everybody got them all right, uh, by the way. Hmm. Uh, no substantial addition to the predictive validity of the test. Um, well, you know, if you're going to give them all 37 right answers to start with, that's probably true, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, three, very difficult to produce quality items that do not pose possible defensibility problems. Um, yeah, and let me tell you, let me tell you what was going on. Well, let me read the fourth one first. Uh, most format driven and therefore potentially the most affected by practice. What they mean by that is it's coachable, okay? Right. Um, but, you know, so yeah, I mean, I think that it's probably a reasonable thing to get rid of. Um, of course, I, I didn't like it at all. In fact, everybody knew the change was coming and the uh, last course that I taught, I was only teaching live courses. Well, it's a different era, right? Um, had hundreds of people in it because everybody knew it was the last time for facts and issues. In fact, there were test prep companies who were had these these big posters up all over the world. What was it? It was February '89, last chance for facts and issues. Can you imagine? Interesting. You know, the same thing happened in 2005 with the SAT when they changed the format to three sections and everybody was freaking out. Nobody knew what this writing section was going to be. I got slammed that spring. We had more students than we could shake a stick at trying to figure out what we were going to do with getting all these kids in with a known quantity test. Because the, the SAT basically hadn't changed from about 1994 through 2005 and they were releasing four tests a year. We had you know, 20, 30 tests to go on that were useful as practice tests. And we knew as soon as they changed format, we had we had no idea what was coming and how things would change and our ability to measure them. And, and we were completely overwhelmed. And it's interesting the same happened there. Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's interesting, um, you know, how much these test changes, uh, you know, affect everybody, right? You know, they affect the test takers, they they affect the people who are trying to teach the stuff. Yeah. Um, you know what I find interesting about this, John, is that uh, when we were studying the history of the LSAT and looking back to the impetus for its creation back in 1947, 
the impetus was a better correlation with 1L grades. And what they wanted was a correlation of 0.5 to 0.7. And I don't think we've come anywhere near that in the entire history of the LSAT. I think I'm being generous if, if I say it's 0.3 right now. Yeah. Well, what so you're I, saying is you don't think the LSAT is necessarily a great measure of well, what I'm, we're doing law school. You know, right? it's, it's the best measure we have, but I don't find the the changes to be surprising given that the goal was to have a much higher correlation and they just never have achieved it and they keep tinkering with it to make it happen and they still seem to be doing it they're just not as as explicit about it if you ask me i mean if you look at the prep tests in the 80s i think that they are definitely tinkering with lr in some some interesting ways yeah well you know, when they, they shifted over, uh, so this is 89, right? And then we have, um, you know, 89 to 91, they got rid of the issues and facts, uh, basically left more or less uh, uh, everything being the same. But, it, you know, in June 91, which is the beginning of what they would call the modern LSAT, but I would just say the current format, this is where we get into 50% of the test being logical reasoning. And um, that that is far more mentally draining, I think, than, uh, you know, because, the, you know, these are independent questions, right? Yeah. You know, it's a lot easier to manage something where you have like six questions on a reading comp passage or a logic game or something like that. You know, it's so, funny because it, it assumes such a prominence that we just developed ways of coping with it. I never viewed LR as intellectually draining. To me, it was the easiest section because it had the shortest passages. <laughs> right. Well, I think, that's how, I think that's how you have to look at it. But if you're <laughs> a person who can't process the passages, you know, it's you know, it's pure hell. And uh, I mean, let's talk for a little bit about the passages and logical reasoning. I mean, you know, they're clearly the whole purpose of the LSAT, right, is basically obfuscation, right? You know, it's to keep people away from the main point, confuse, etc. And I think they do a particularly good job of that in the logical reasoning. Yeah, I think that's right. I, th I think you have lots of opportunities to find nuance as an item writer. In, in logical reasoning, where you're drawing real texts in reading comp, and so you can't mess around with it as much. And logic games, as you said, is reasonably cut and dried. You have to come up with creative ways of phrasing rules um, or creative ways of sort of constructing um, patterns. But, you know, LR is where the nuance is. Um, yeah, the but, linguistic but, nuance. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, I... What's, what's interesting to me is that in looking back at this, you know, we were talking about uh, uh, correlation to success in law school. And I think, you know, I think it's it's right that that we, we haven't achieved what we wanted to achieve. But I, th I think it's very difficult for us to create any standardized metric that does as good a job as this does or better than than this does. You know, we're, we're trying to measure things that are unmeasurable and we know that they're unmeasurable in this way. We can't quantify somebody's ability to do well in law school based on something that's two hours long. That's impossible. So the question is, where is the predictive power? Is the predictive power on the positive end or on the negative end? And it could yeah. be that what the LSAT really is capable of doing is saying, look, we don't know who's going to do well. 
but we certainly know that if you can't do well on this thing, you're not going to do well. I think that's right. And, you know, over the years, I mean, hundreds of times people have asked me the question, you know, is an LSAT score an indication of how I might do in law school? And I don't know. But what I think the answer is, is that it has predictive value in the extremes. Yeah. Uh, which I think what you're saying here, right? That, you know, people who, you know, get a really, really low score, whatever that means, you know, whatever version of the test are, it's likely indicative of a lack of reading skill, right? The, you know, the kind of reading skills that are necessary to get through law school. And the people who score really high, well, I think it's the, I think, I think it means they do read well, you know, and they, yeah. you know, they process information well, and therefore they're well, well suited for law school. But the thing is that, um, you know, by definition, most people, okay, the low scores don't get in. Uh, the high scores are certainly more likely to get in, provided they do enough other things right. But most of the people in law school are not the really high LSAT scorers, right? Yeah. So what does that mean? Means that uh, I don't think there's a huge amount of predictive value in the mid-range of the test. So, so here, here's here's what I found interesting. Early on in this process, there was a guy from University of Tennessee, uh, Henry Whitham, who looked at the LSAT and he said exactly this, right? He said, you know, for me, it's, the test usefulness is not in predictive of success, but in predictive of lack of success. In order to be successful, you need more than just your natural ability. You also need a desire to work. And I think maybe those in the, in the upper extreme, those who are naturally inclined to score 170, 175 and above without having prepped the test, maybe those people don't have, maybe it's not the desire to work, but don't have the practice of work under them as much because they haven't had to work as hard. And it's those people that, that, that have the grit and the determination to improve themselves on this test and to, um, to achieve more than they were initially able to do those are the people for whom desire to work is very strong ability to work and apply yourself is very strong and that's the thing that's actually indicative of success mm -hmm. yeah maybe i mean look i'm i'm an adhere i'm an adherent to growth mindset right and i really do believe that no matter who you are no matter where you are right now what matters is not the thing in front of you measuring how smart you are today but what you do about your failures and how you incorporate those into your practice and into your and into your in, into your ability to grow into something more tomorrow that really matters and so if if we apply that to standardized testing i don't care what your score was today what did you do what did you do well what can you improve on and what are you going to do about it and those are the things that are going to be indicative of your success in law school i mean you know you guys tell me but i would imagine it's not the people that have good answers on day one that end up being really successful. It's those who struggle on day one, but learn to adapt to their surroundings and improve themselves that are able to come through law school highly successful. Um, I think anybody can come through law school successfully if they just make it the goal to get through law school successfully. Um, uh. You know, it's a lot harder to get into law school than it is to get through. At least, you know, that's that's my general. I mean, unless it's changed dramatically, and I doubt it. 
Uh, I think things have changed in the U.S. to some extent. There's been a massive proliferation of law schools at the lower end of the the spectrum, and they cost a fortune and don't do a good job of segregating students, you know, with that negative predictor. And it's it's created a real dilemma in the bar prep world. You know, I mean, it's trickled up because now all these students are taking and failing the bar exam. Right. So where's the causal connection, right? Do those do those schools exist and therefore um, the LSAT has to adapt and accommodate? Or was it this change in the LSAT and the increased access, but then, you know, and the increased transparency that results in people with lower scores, but a ton of interest that causes universities to create these private law schools that cost you $50,000? Isn't it just the profit centers? Isn't it that simple? Sure. I, mean, I that's think so. Higher that's across higher education. That's not just law school. Well, of course, yeah, of course, but that would include law school. I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't, I mean, you know, given the fact that these schools go out of business, you know, they come and go. I mean, I would have to think that a lot of it's driven by just straight economics. Also, I mean, I'm not recommending this, obviously, but it is possible in some jurisdictions to be uh, admitted to the bar without graduating from an ABA approved law school. Um, I mean, am I right that California still has quite a number of them? Quite a number? I don't know if I'd go that far. There, I, I forget. How <laughs> oh, the schools. Yes, yes, the yeah, schools. Yeah. I thought you meant practicing attorneys who had gotten in that way. I think that's a. Uh, no, no, that's no. What... The schools. The schools. There <laughs> yeah, are the schools that, exist. There were at least. Okay, last time I was aware. They of exist. This, yes. A number of them. A number. And there are still one or two states, I believe, where it's possible to become a lawyer through law office study. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, I, well, I mean, it is possible, right? It is Look, possible. Kim Kardashian didn't do it, and she has as, as much resources as anyone at her disposal. She couldn't pass the baby bar in California, and I think that's a big indication that practicing attorneys have no idea what's on the bar or how to educate people, at least not with our current model of legal education. That's silly to me to go do an apprenticeship in California. If Kim Kardashian doesn't have the resources to pass the bar exam, then, <laughs> well, who does? Yeah. Who can make that a viable route if she can't? That seems well, preposterous you know, the bar to exam me. is a completely separate issue. Uh, but you have to pass it. You can't practice in any jurisdiction without passing the bar exam. Oh, yeah, oh, no, I know. But I don't think it has an awful lot to do with, you know, where you go to law school necessarily. I mean, I know there are mm -hmm. stats on this, but the whole I mean, there's all these bar review courses, right? They do a great job of getting people to finish line. The, uh, mm, I don't know about a great job. Well, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you don't want to see how the sausage is made sometimes. A pass you know? is a pass. OK, a pass <laughs> is a pass. Yeah, but all right. But. Fair enough. But, but if you but if you ask the, the general law, legal community, which was harder, the LSAT or the bar? What percentage are going to say the bar? 85, 90 percent of them? Bar yeah, was, all of them. Was a bigger challenge? All of them. Right. Which are means, you sure of that? I'm pretty sure. I mean, all the lawyers I know would say that. Yeah, that I. Case? Yeah, that's that was that's my opinion. Looking back, I, I felt far more stress, anxiety and pressure and uh, and uncertainty about the bar exam than I ever did about the LSAT. God, you must have known a lot of law then or something. You know, <laughs> no, I, I made it all up. That's why I freaked out for three months after the test. Oh, I, made <laughs> I it knew all damn up. well I, I made it up. Completely comfortable. God, we're, we're, we're such different people. You know, 
I've always prided myself on my ability to do so well, knowing so little. Yeah. But it sounds like <laughs> but you're this, the opposite. Well, I passed, this, so it worked. This is my point, right? Like, if, if, the, if the bar is that hard, right, why would your goal be, oh, I'm struggling on the LSAT, so I'm going to go to one of these non-ABA schools, and I'm going to go there, and then I'll, then I'll do, you know, then I'll go the other route, but I can pass the bar, no problem. That's ridiculous, right? It's, if, if it really is about your ability to, to, to apply yourself and do work and absorb this information and absorb, like, if you can't do it on the LSAT, you're not going to do it on the bar. So learn to do it on the LSAT first. And then you can get through law school and figure out what is and is not working so that yeah. you can do this on the bar. You know, I, I certainly would agree, you know, if we can extrapolate to a principle that I, th I think we would all agree with is that um, if one were to see LSAT preparation and the LSAT as developing skills that are worth something beyond the LSAT, that would be a true statement. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. been my philosophy for many years. I call it the test prep pedagogy. Let's learn something, damn it. <laughs> yeah. And you still have students with that attitude, Keith. Well, very they few. Love it. <laughs> no, they love it. They love it. The truth, the truth is that the students know that they're wrong. I had this conversation with a private student the other day. He, he, came, he's, he came to me, you know, a, a month and a half before his test. He's like, I'm just looking for that last little push. And we were talking about it. And he's like, look, I know you're right. I know I'm supposed to do all this review. I know it's better for me. I know it will be better in the long run to actually learn the skills. But I was really hoping. And he said this with, with a bit of a smirk. He said, but I was really hoping that I would be the exception and that I would just be able to skip the line and just get my score and be done with it. And I said, of course, we all want that. But the truth is that's not the best way, because even if we do it this time, all we're doing is 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 delaying the yeah. inevitable you kicking know, the can down the road until we yeah. can't do it intuitively the next time. Yeah. And if it's not the LSAT, it'll be one L. And if it's not yeah. one L, it's the bar The bar exam. So maybe the way to view this is the LSAT should be a rite of passage for all people who want to achieve something and think better in the world. Would, would, would you think? I, I think we can do better than that. I don't think it's there just for the sake of its being there, right? I think there's actually something to learn about organizing your mind and about thinking in a way that is concrete and repeatable that I think is of value, you know, it, it, certainly to lawyers and maybe to everybody, right? That we should be able to think and reason in this way and have, have rules that guide us to do that. And if we're not thinking that way, we should start. I teach it to my middle school students and my and this is a writing seminar because my idea is that I want to expose them to good writing and bad writing and everything in between so that they make deliberate choices in their own writing. Do I want to write like the LSAT or do I want to write like, uh, I don't know, you know, name your author. But I want to give them that option. I want to show them there's a technical way of writing that's very exact and demanding. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know. You know, in previous centuries, there was sort of a classical education, right? You know, you the classics. About, you know, great books, things like that. Maybe yeah. also preparation is the modern day substitute for the classical education. It's think? the yeah, the short version. <laughs> I've been I've been arguing about this in music for ages, right? A kid wants to play the guitar, great. You're going to start with playing classical piano. 
right? Uh. And it's not because class. It's not because classical piano is is important in and of itself, but it's that structure around the way that you create music. You can't learn to break the rules until you know what the rules are, right? And then we can break them all we want. Yeah. Last night in a in a class doing the comparative passages, I. Mm -hmm. Recommended to my students that they read passage B before passage A because it just happened to be in that instance that passage B was the intro to a book and passage A was an excerpt from a an essay within the book. And I suggested that the intro would be much more superficial and easier to penetrate. And then sure enough, passage A was a huge trap. But um you know, one of the students kept harping on it and saying, should I always do that? And and it was an interesting conversation because I knew to break the rule. I mean, that's the that was the key. I knew in that one instance it would be helpful to do them out of order. Yeah. You couldn't have known until you had done so many of them in order. I, this is what I'm talking about, about the structured brain, right? We we've gone away from so many ways in which in, in which we learn through rigor, right? I, you know, the degree to which kids are actually sat down with a 12 by 12 multiplication table and forced to memorize it, that's mostly gone by the wayside. We mostly don't teach that way anymore. And I think on the whole, that's a good thing. Um, but we're missing some things, right? It's that repetition. It's that rote learning that creates, you know, well, I'll defer to, to Keith, the, the, uh, the scientist here, but that creates structures in your brain. It creates real, really good structured synapses that allow you to recall things in a much more regular way. And if we don't learn that way, and if we don't demand that rigor of ourselves, then how are we supposed to recall in, in that same way? This is why our future devices, our Wikipedias in our pockets are dangerous. Sure, access to information is powerful, but then we're not forced to create ways that we can recall that information on our own. We know to just reach for our device. The printing press ruined your mind. It did. It did. <laughs> Darn that Gutenberg. So, you know, Elsa has had this continual sort of uh, theme of, you know, we want to minimize the ability to prepare for the test and on their scoring scale. You know, we want a, we want a meaningful scoring scale. It's interesting that they went back to, the, they went back to, or they got rid of the 10 to 48. They moved to the 120 to 180, but again, they gave some reason for this, okay? And they say the reasons given were, it was too difficult to make meaningful distinctions among test takers, okay? And the 10 to 48 scale did not result in the kind of score distribution the test required. To put it simply, too many people were getting high scores. What do you think about that? Better distribution on a 120 to 180 scale than a 10 to 48? I've learned, I mean, you know, after teaching so many tests, I've learned to view it as entirely arbitrary. And that just pisses off my college students because I believe you should use the full range of the grading scale. Someone should get a D or a C in the class, not because they are dumb or didn't work hard, but because they exhibited the least potential of the bunch. <laughs> you, you like the bell curve. You like the bell curve system of grading. Yeah, I was always a very harsh grader, and it made me very unpopular as a professor. It's, it's uh -huh. hard. That, that it, would it's, do it. That would do it. <laughs> look, here, here's the thing. If, if everybody in your class gets an A or everybody in your class fails, you failed as a teacher. It's not their fault, right? Your job is to create sufficient challenge that there's distribution. 
So if the LSAT is, is creating a test in which there are too many people getting high scores, that's their fault, not, not the student's fault, right? And they have to do it a different way. If there's one test in which everybody does well, fine, then we have to adjust the content the next time. But we can't treat it like, we, what, like they tweet, treat the, uh, the actuarial exams, where they literally only pass the top 50% of administrations of that particular exam. That's unreasonable in this case because you've made clear what the content is ahead of time. And if people are sufficiently prepared, those people earn those scores. There's nothing you can do about that. Well, that's interesting to hear you say that because, you know, many years, well, in fact, when I was in law school, um, I actually taught at a federal penitentiary uh, a couple days a week. There was a program to People there were doing a community college course and they had to have somebody to teach law. And, you know, uh, I actually think I gave them all A's. Mm. <laughs> so I don't know. Did I make a mistake? I mean, I don't know. It depends on to whom you were accountable, right? You know, in, in this case, right? Like, I, I was trying to motivate them. Yeah, sure. I was trying to motivate them. Did it work? <laughs> don't know. Uh, the year ended. I walked out for the last time and never saw any of them since. Well, if any of John's students are listening now, let us know. Trust me, they're not. On Twitter. No, they're no, not. It, it's interesting that you say that because one of the things that I disliked about university teaching and what I like much more about test prep is that I wasn't only accountable to my students. I was accountable to the administration and the employers who were going to look at those grades and try to rely on them in terms of them meaning something, an assessment of the students. So I always viewed it as sort of my obligation to use the whole range, even though it was highly unpleasant and I'd get a ton of emails mm -hmm. at the end of the semester. I also think, though, that there's a difference between giving somebody a grade that's reflective of their score or relative score on one assessment and a, and a grade that is, uh, you know, well distributed for the entire year and something that carries forward, right? That's so true. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if you're in the 10th percentile on a single test, yeah, you probably should get an F or a D. But over the course of the year, if you demonstrate your ability to do well, there's no reason to give you a D simply because everybody else in the, in the, in the class did marginally better than you. Yeah. Yeah. So where do you see the future of the LSAT going anyway? I mean, you know, when the history of the world is written, say a thousand years from now, and they write about the 20th century or the 21st century, do you think there will be a chapter on the LSAT? Uh... Well, you know, the most recent development in that I've been following is that Kelly Testy took over as the executive director. That was sometime around prep test. Uh, what did I say, Jake? It was uh, 70 or 80. Somewhere in that range. Yeah. And oh, I think it was 70, around prep test 70, she, she took over. And during her tenure, the things that have occurred have been some unsettling changes in logic games and LR, the botched rollout to the digital LSAT, and then really one of the worst handlings of the pandemic that I can imagine. So her tenure has been really troubled at LSAC. And I don't know to what extent she's to blame for that, but she's been at the helm throughout some of the most turbulent times for the LSAT in my recollection anyway. Yeah. Do you have any chance this test will just go away? 
I, I believe, you know, I wouldn't have thought that 10 years ago, but given the decisions that have been made, the changes in the test, the emergence of the GRE as an alternative, I don't think it's impossible that something else emerges as a, a superior alternative. And I'll tell you something else this year and last year have illustrated some very serious deficiencies in the bar exam as well. So if there isn't a change, in legal standardized testing, that's a shame on on the education community. Honestly, we all know it's a big problem right now. So who's going to fix it? What do you think, Jake? This is a problem ac across all tests, across all levels, right? We've been we've been grappling with this problem since the '70s, right? Since this issue with reliability. Um, I don't want to say that College Board's in trouble, but College Board is in trouble, right? With the UC system dropping them, with the number of schools that are test optional these last two years, they're in trouble and they have to find a way to keep themselves relevant. They've been scrambling for 15 years and things aren't getting better. If that domino falls, I have a feeling that the rest of them are going to fall as well. Mm -hmm. That's what I think will happen. I think there will be resonance throughout the industry. Um, and that we'll have to come up with new ways. I mean, this is happening on the state level as well, right? States went to Common Core and then they dropped it and then they went to SAT, ACT and then they dropped it. And meanwhile, they look internationally and there are other places in the world that have gone away from, from multiple choice standardized testing. Um, I think Australia has got, done away with it completely. They still have accountability for their teachers, but they don't do multiple choice testing anymore precisely because there are huge problems with reliability and validity. Um, and I and I think we're headed that way. Now, what law schools do about it in order to, to handle the fact that they're going to have to do holistic admissions? Who knows? It'll be hugely expensive for the applicants. It will. It will. Yeah, and you might totally see a reduction. Right. You might see a shrinking of the whole industry. Mm. That may end up be what being what happens. But yeah, well, you know, this year we had one hundred and sixty nine thousand test takers in the last cycle. So shrinking of the industry might not be unwarranted. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fair. Is that a lot or a little? It was the second most I could find in in the history of the LSAT. And what was really remarkable about it was not just the number, but the year over year increase was something like 25 percent. I mean, it was like one hundred and ten thousand the year before and then one hundred and sixty nine. Obviously not sustainable. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've, I've seen many periods of that over the years. I've also seen many, you know, many shrinkages, big mm -hmm. shrinkages. Yeah, this type of thing. And it'll come and go. Look, with this huge swell, we're going to see a, sh a shrink two years from now. Oh, That's of course. Yeah, there's no doubt That's about it. So. Why, why all the interest in law school anyway? I mean, all these years I've been a lawyer, it's hard for me to imagine why anybody would get so worked up about being a lawyer. Like, what is it? There might be some attraction to sort of the, the you know, the image of the professional. Right. That that gig economy went away or people are afraid about the shrinking of the economy, given the jobs troubles in the last two years, though. Right now, the jobs market is is booming in certain sectors, though. It's it's tough in others. Um, I don't know. I You know, I think there's a draw to the idea that, you know, things aren't great in my business right now. Maybe maybe I go back to one of those professions that's tried and true. And law school is the is the lowest hanging fruit. Right. You don't need all of that. Uh, the technical knowledge that you need for med school. Well, it's like I said earlier, I'm, I'm, you know, partly serious. Okay. That, you know, I think law school will often attracts people who can't do math. You know, I think I mean, that it, the, uh, 
the minimal number of prerequisites attracts people. And I also think that there is, um, you know, the, the social justice aspect of the, of the profession attracts a lot of people. And so when you combine those two together, that's where you start getting problems. People who don't have cl clear career paths and then applying because they don't have the credentials to do other things. There's where you get a real glut of, uh, you know, of applicants that are really ill suited to the to the profession. Yeah. You know, one last question, kind of bring this to an end. Um, you know, a theme that has run through this whole history of the LSAT and test prep has been the, you know, the fact that the whole system clearly benefits those who have, you know, who have access to funds, whether it's applying to law school, whether it's test prep, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, we opened the door on this a little earlier. I, my impression is that both of you are of the opinion that standardized testing does not enhance access to law school. I don't know. I'm on the fence. I don't know. It may, you know, that I like the transparency of it. I don't like the admissions committees making decisions on purely subjective factors that we can't hold them accountable to. But then again, you know, we, we have just done an hour on all the problems with the LSAT. So where do we well, stand? There's problems with everything. Yeah, there are, there are problems across the board. It's, it's good when it's there. It's good when it's not. Um, there are, uh, you know, there, there are there are there are lots of reasons to advocate for standardization and quantitative metrics. And there are lots of reasons that, mm -hmm. you know, I don't I don't have a good answer. I think, you know, what would you, if you could do anything you could to. All right. So let, let, let's agree for the sake of discussion that quantitative metrics play a useful role in admissions. What would you do to uh, make make it fairer than for, for applicants. I mean, it seems to me that a certain group of applicants who, you know, really are much more on their own than others, you know, they don't have the funds, you know, which is by the way, what I, you know, what we're trying to achieve with the LSAT study group, you know, is yeah. sort of a, you know, a forum for people to get information and work with this stuff. Right. But I mean, what, what would you do to alleviate that as a problem bit? I mean, look, College Board tried this, right? College Board tried to introduce this new diversity score, which took a look at your demographics, yada, 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 and was a score that would go along with your score to indicate to schools, you know, the degree to which this you had privilege or not. And there was immediately immediate backlash across the board, both from people who felt like their diversity scores would be very low and it would negatively affect them to people whose diversity scores were very high. And then it was revealing information about them that they felt was not the business of the schools to whom they were applying. So ultimately, right, that was no indication that, that we were going to get anywhere on that route. Right. You know, we, we provide access in lots of other ways. I think Khan Academy does a great service in that regard about providing access to, to free educational tools. I think we could build those out more. Um, you know, I, I don't I, there are great minds at play trying to solve this problem and have been for a very long time. And, you know, we, we keep coming up short. You know, here's here's what I think. I think the onus is on the ABA, not on LSAC. And I think that what I would like to see is a more rigorous set of prerequisites similar to what they have for medical school 
you can't apply for medical school regardless of your MCAT score if you haven't taken two semesters of physics, two semesters of biology, two semesters of organic chemistry, two semesters of uh, introductory chemistry, a semester of biochemistry. I mean, the list is really extensive. The classes that you have to take to prepare to study medicine are purposeful. It's not just come one, come all. So I, that's what I would do. If I were the ABA, I would say you cannot accept a student to study law who hasn't taken government, you know, like economics, well, that's blah, blah, blah. Idea. That's actually an interesting or, idea. Or we, yeah. or, we go the, or we go the other way and we say, look, we don't care how you accept students. We don't care what metrics you use, but schools that are ABA accredited, you are required to have this, you know, the following uh, degree of diversity, degree of, this, you know, whatever the metrics are that we want to see in those law, in those, in those law classes, that's that's what we hold the schools accountable for and let them sort it out they'll figure it out they have resources <laughs> right harvard has tens of billions of dollars sitting in their uh, endowment i think they can spend the money to figure out how this works how do we get a class that actually represents the 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 kind of diversity and the kind of sort of wholeness of the picture that we want instead of a whole bunch of people with 175 pluses from top 20 undergraduates well, the first step is to get people to buy into the idea that that's a legitimate and important goal. Um, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, we're really there yet. There's a, a law professor in, uh, in Emory University, uh, Professor Dorothy Brown, who just wrote an interesting book, The Whiteness of Wealth, you know, where she talks about the, you know, the way the whole system is basically, you know, stacked in favor of certain groups of people, etc. And, you know, I think that she makes some very reasonable points. On that note, certainly we have lots to continue talking about. Probably we should bring it to an end for today. This has been a fascinating discussion. I thank you for it. Um, concluding thoughts, and don't forget to give people your coordinates. Uh, you can find me at nexusacademics.com or triplereviewed.online and always on Facebook. Yeah, and I'm Keith at Last Call Bar Academy. You can Google search it or look for me on Facebook. All right. Well, that is wonderful. And yes, my name is John Richardson. You can probably not find me anywhere these days, but occasionally <laughs> uh, as the administrator of the admin of the uh, LSAT study group on Facebook. Uh, okay. Wonderful. Thanks very much. Thanks, John. Thank you.